0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. You choir. Another great reminder of the true meaning of Easter Resurrection Sunday. And so now it's our privilege to go to God's Word, the Bible together to see what scripture the Bible has to say about the true meaning of Easter. If you came in and grabbed a bulletin, on the bulletin is the title of the sermon and also just a few points if you wanted to take notes or if that helps you following along as we study God's Word together. Today's sermon I called Risen, Ascended, and Coming Again. The True Meaning of Easter. The True Meaning of Easter. If you're not familiar with the Bible especially the New Testament, and you haven't been taught from the Scriptures thoroughly, then you might be confused about what Easter's all about. If you're not familiar with the Christian religion, I was reminded of that again this Easter season, especially on TV and radio. Just another reminder in our culture of what the world, the unbelieving world, the secular world thinks of Easter, how they interpret it. Usually, the world defines Easter or shows it to us through the lens of Roman Catholicism. That's pretty typical. The familiar news channels that we have, CBS, NBC, CNN, etc. What's going on in the world today? What's going on in our culture? What's going on here in America in the Easter season? And typically it's the Roman Catholic version. Having grown up as a Roman Catholic for 19 years, Never studying the Bible at that time, later on I read the Bible and actually came to understand the true meaning of Easter and realized it wasn't through the Roman Catholic practice. So what I want to share today is the true meaning of Easter, and really it's not the true meaning of Easter because, this might be a surprise to some of you, the word Easter is not in the Bible. The origin of the word Easter is not even Christian. Now, you don't need to feel guilty by using the word Easter because it has become a colloquialism for us. Easter, we know what it means. That it's a religious holiday for Christians around the world on this Sunday, Easter. So that's how we use it. That's fine. But more technically, just so we're clear, we're talking about not Easter Sunday but Resurrection Sunday. I keep saying that, Resurrection Sunday. That's what gives purpose and meaning to this day historically 2,000 years ago. It is when Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God, rose again from the dead. He appeared to witnesses. They wrote it down. It's been preserved. We have a record of it right here in the Bible. And Christians have been celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years in light of that event. So, really, we could say the sermon should be called Risen, Ascended, and Coming Again, the true meaning of Resurrection Sunday, just to set the record straight. So that's what we do. So this is just going to be real simple. What does the Bible say about this most important event? If I were to ask you what was the most important event in the history of the world, it would be interesting one-on-one privately to talk to all of you and see what your answer would be. What is the most important event in the history of the world? Some of you might, some of you Christians might say, well, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you might take issue with that and say, no, it was the death of Jesus Christ, the creation. I mean, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and Some other Christians might say creation and those kind of things. Some Christians might even say, well, actually the most important event in the history of the world is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my answer would be from a biblical point of view, it's actually all of those. It's not just one of those. Because when you're talking about the meaning of Jesus' ministry, the purpose of his ministry, who he is, what he represents, what he taught, what the Bible teaches about from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, it includes all of those elements. And you can't pit one against the other. The resurrection is not more important than the crucifixion. The second coming of Jesus Christ that we look forward to is not more important or less important than the crucifixion and resurrection. It's all one complete work of God. Today or this morning, we're going to emphasize, because we had Good Friday and we talked about the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ in the crucifixion, that Continues the story or begins the story, and then today with the resurrection and the events that follow, that finishes the story to the completion and the culmination. So uh, the Christian message, the message of the Bible, the ministry of Jesus Christ, it's a complete message, and we need to understand all the components of it. And we're going to highlight three of those this morning, one, two, and three, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and his return that we look forward to. But before we get to that, just a brief word to set it in its context historically to bring us up to speed, especially maybe those of you who aren't too familiar with the Bible. Uh, Resurrection Sunday only has meaning in light of the death of Jesus Christ, which we celebrated a few days ago. The death of Jesus Christ only has meaning in light of the 4,000 years of world history that came before the death of Jesus Christ. So way back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, very simple. If you read it, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the Bible says. That's what God said. That's what he's revealed to man. That's how we got here. This is the purpose of life, the meaning of life, a worldview. Didn't evolve. This is what God has declared. He was the only one there. He's the only witness. He's the only reliable source. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And included in that was all of creation, all that lives on earth. And the culmination of his creation in that first week was humanity, the human race. And so that's what the Bible says. Uh, God created all things. And on the sixth day, God said, the triune God said among themselves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need to make humanity and we will. We will make man and we will make him in the likeness of us. And we will make him male and female. And so God created the first two humans, male and female, Adam and Eve. And they were real people. That's where you came from. That's where I came from. Really, that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus taught and believed. Right there in Genesis 1. And humans would be different than all of other God's creation, including the angels, animals, plants, rocks, and inanimate objects. And the distinctive about humanity, God said, was that he would make humans, every one of them, in his image. Every human being that God ever created or was brought into this world If they have breath and they have life, every human being is made in the image of God. Meaning God has literally put his divine imprint on every human soul. And that's been true ever since the beginning of creation. That is a biblical distinctive. That is the Christian worldview. That is what Jesus taught and believed. Every human being has been made in the image of God. And as a result, every human being is sacred, precious, valuable, Cherished as God's creation. Every human being has more value and significance than anything else in creation. Every human being was made in the image of God. And as a result, because we were made in God's image, every human being has a conscience. Self-awareness is a person. And God values you. The imprint of Almighty God on every human being. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what religion you practice or the lack thereof. It doesn't matter if you are male or female. It doesn't matter where you are on the social strata. It doesn't matter when you were born in history. Every human being that comes into this world is sacred before God because every human being was made in his image. And there's another thing that Genesis communicates early on about humanity. Not only was every human being made in the image of God and therefore sacred, but Adam and Eve sinned. They committed sin. They were disobedient and God said, I'm a holy God. I am without sin. I can't tolerate sin. And the day that you you shall sin, you'll pay the consequence. The day that you sin, you shall surely die. And the Bible goes on from Genesis to the end of the book to say that God must punish sin. He is a holy God. He is the only one that is innately, inherently sinless. And he's the perfect judge, the righteous judge. He must Punish sin. That's what he has declared and determined because he is the creator. And then he goes on to be more specific. And sin must be punished or covered and can only be forgiven with the shedding of blood. If someone sins, someone must give a light. In the Old Testament, God had them slaughter animals, innocent animals, as a picture that God requires death for sin. Otherwise, there is no forgiveness. And that culminates with the death of Jesus Christ who came to fulfill all those pictures of animals that were slaughtered in the Old Testament because God requires death for sin. Sin cannot be dealt with or forgiven. And that's what the Holy God said. So, and God went on to say in his word ever since the time of Adam and Eve, every human being born in this world is a sinner. We're born sinners. That's what scripture clearly says. We are born really condemned in the eyes of our holy creator. And things need to be made right. Things need to be repaired. We need to get back into a right relationship with God. And it's only through the forgiveness of sin, which comes only through the shedding of blood. That's amazing. That's in the beginning of the Bible, where God gives a biography of every human being. So from a biblical point of view, even if I have never met you in my life, I know two of the most significant things about you regarding your inner constitution in the deepest parts of your soul. What are they? You are made in the image of God and therefore you are sacred. A sacred creation of God. That's what separates you apart from the rest of creation and animals. If you believe in evolution, you can't say that. You can't say that one person is more sacred than another. You can't say that a human being is sacred, more sacred than a snake. Because if you believe in evolution, they just evolved. God didn't create it. God didn't imprint his divine image on human beings as a reflection of him, making them sacred and precious, giving them value, dignity. So I know that about you. Every human being I see is made in the image of God. Therefore, they are precious. They belong to God. He owns them. Every soul is mine, said God, in Ezekiel 18. He's the creator. He is the judge. As a result, as a fellow human being, I need to give every human being respect i respect them because they were made in the image of god but another thing i know about you according to the bible if i've never met you is you are rotten sinner to the core and guess what so am i and we haven't even had a conversation yet one is good one is bad sacred made in the image of god and get this a candidate for salvation from almighty god a candidate to being adopted into his eternal family Being united with him with eternal life forever. At the same time, you've been separated from your creator because the sin that lives in you. We are all sinful. That's what the Bible teaches from the very beginning. And for 4,000 years, God, throughout the Old Testament, had a plan. In light of being made in the image of God, but also in light of this problem called sin, God implemented a plan in eternity past so that he might be able to redeem some and save them from their sin that separates them from God and bring them into right relationship with him. And the culmination of that plan was that blood would be shed in the precious, unique life of the Lord Jesus Christ at the crucifixion. And that's what Jesus did. He came into this world, willingly died on a cross. He'd never sinned. he never did anything wrong. He knew he was going to die. He was born to die. He came to die. That was his main purpose. He died on the cross, was crucified for six hours on that day. And he was absorbing the spiritual wrath of God the Father for all sin as a substitute for others. And then he died in fulfillment of Scripture. He was buried in keeping with Scripture. He rose again from the dead three days later in keeping with Scripture and also the prophecies that he himself gave. And he continued his work, not just with his death, but also his resurrection, his ascension, His work goes on as the great high priest over the universe right now, as the judge of your earth in the future, and he is coming again. So let's go ahead and look at the complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ in light of that foundation that I just laid, that every human being is made in the image of God, and every human being is a sinner to the core and needs to be rescued. By the way, just one comment about being made in the image of God. You know, if you talk to people, it doesn't matter if they're agnostics, atheists, or people from other religions or worldviews. Most people, if you ask them, is, is murder wrong? Most people say, yeah. Try it. Talk to people. Ask them. People that believe in evolution say, yeah. Oh, okay, so murder's wrong. Then ask them the hard question, the follow-up question. Why? Why is murder wrong? They may stumble, they may end the conversation, they may say they have to go, they may change the subject, they may actually give you an answer. But I guarantee it won't be the biblical answer, because there's only one answer. Why is murder wrong? Why is Uh, Not all killing is illegitimate, not all killing is wrong, according to the Bible. But there is killing that is wrong and illegitimate, that is called murder, and it is condemned by God. That's what I'm talking about. Illegitimate killing of another person, taking their life. Why is murder wrong? There's only one. Some might say, well, it's in the Bible if you're a Christian. Well, yeah, but why does the Bible say that murder is wrong? The only answer is because every human being was made in God's image. That's why murder is wrong. And if you believe in evolution or any other view contrary to Scripture, you can't say that because you don't believe human beings are distinct, unique, and made in the image of God. So very important. Keep that in mind. God loved his creation. He loved the world. He wanted to rescue people from sin. And so he provided a plan to do it. And it's called the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So after Jesus' death, let's now go ahead and look at the rest of Jesus' mission and ministry to humanity with these three elements, that he rose again from the dead, he ascended on high, and he is coming again. And in light of that truth, we can celebrate Easter. Let's go ahead and look at point number one. Jesus rose from the dead. Let's go ahead and look at the account in Mark. Um, In Mark 16, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I'll just read it and you can listen carefully. So there are four books in the New Testament called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're very similar, yet they are distinct and different. They complement one another perfectly. And when you read all four together, it's like you get this stereophonic, full, complete story about the Lord Jesus Christ. And his ministry of everything God wanted us to know, not everything we could know about Jesus, but everything God wanted us to know about Jesus. And Mark is one of those versions, true history. Mark was a friend of the apostle Peter. Mark was a disciple of Peter. Mark was a young man when Jesus died. Mark may have been, I don't know, in his teens. He was called a young man. And he was kind of on the periphery of Jesus' ministry. He wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't in the inner circle. He didn't have all that privileged information. But through the apostle Peter, later, Mark would write down the first-hand account that Peter had of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, including the resurrection. So here's what Mark said about Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Mark chapter 16, and I'll just read verses 1 through 8. Jesus was crucified Friday, buried Friday, in the tomb Friday, in the tomb all day Saturday, in the tomb part of Sunday morning. The sun begins to rise, and here's what it says, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Saturday, their religious holiday was over, Sunday is about to begin. Early in the morning, at the time of dawn, it was still dark. The sun was beginning to rise, and Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of James, and another woman named Salome, bought spices to the tomb so that they might come and anoint Jesus' dead body. So the first people to visit the tomb on Sunday morning were these women, especially Mary Magdalene. Mary was a friend of Jesus, a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus, ministered to Jesus along with a group of women throughout his ministry. Some of these women... We're actually at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. Some of these women were actually watching Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapping it up and burying it in the tomb. They were eyewitnesses of, it. They, these women saw his burial. And here are the first people to see and witness the resurrection of the empty tomb are these women. So these women, Mary Magdalene and others, Actually are the only people who were involved in all three events. Witnessed the death of Christ at the foot of the cross, witnessed his burial firsthand, and went and witnessed the empty tomb Sunday morning. The apostles didn't even do that. There were twelve apostles. One of them, and only one of them, was at the foot of the cross when he died. That was John. None of the twelve apostles witnessed Jesus being buried in the tomb because they were scattered and gone. And it's not one of these courageous 12 Galilean fishermen who followed Jesus for three and a half years that are the first up on Sunday morning going to the tomb to visit Jesus. It is these women. And that's why in all four Gospels they play a significant part in the story. You have a plurality of reliable eyewitnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're significant. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Salome, they brought spies. They thought Jesus was still dead, even though he had told them he's rising from the dead. They're going to anoint his body. They knew that there was going to be a problem because they knew there was a huge, massive stone rolled in front of the tomb. Verse 2, it was very early on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. Why do Christians meet on Sunday to worship? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. That's why. Very early on the first day of the week, these ladies came to the tomb Just as the sun had risen. It's very possible that Mary Magdalene got there earlier than the other women while it was still dark. That's what the gospel of John tells us, verse 3. And then the ladies were actually saying, when they finally met together, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us so that we may enter the tomb? These stones are huge and massive. We had the privilege of going to Israel a few years ago, and we saw two tombs, one of which they think definitely is actually the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw plenty of burial stones. And they are, they're round. They're massive. They're made out of limestone. They weigh thousands and thousands of pounds. They're about as tall as me. One man, one person can't move it. Verse 4, so the ladies get there. They get to the tomb early in the morning, wondering about the stone. Then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large the other gospels tell us that at that time there was an earthquake at some point at that time there was a massive earthquake it was localized it was from god god intervened in a supernatural way and with the earthquake the stone was rolled away as an angel descended from heaven and the angel was superintending that process of removing the stone and then the angel when his work was done sat up on top of that stone as the ladies arrived and the stone was rolled away was the stone rolled away to let jesus out of the tomb probably not Because Jesus now had a resurrection supernatural body where he could just go boom, 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 wherever he wanted to, however he wanted to. The stone was rolled away so the ladies could go in. And the apostles, Peter and John. So the ladies get there, verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right. The other gospels tell us this young man was an angel. He's sitting there in the tomb where Jesus used to be. He was wearing a white robe. They were amazed. One of the past says, they also feared. Whenever a human being encounters an angel from heaven, there is fear. They are supernatural beings. They are from outer space. They are not normal. They are as bright as the sun. They are glorious. They are intimidating. They are holy. And there seems to be always fear on the part of human beings when they're encountering an angel. Verse six, and the angel said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, get this. Or this is amazing. Here is the place where they laid him. Behold, look, they laid him right here. And if you look closely, he is not there. He is risen. That's why they were amazed. Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter, especially Peter, the lead apostle, go tell his apostles, Judas is dead. So now there's 11 apostles. Go tell Peter what you see. Jesus is not here. He is risen from the dead. The angel says he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. you're you going to see him. Not only is he risen from the dead and not here anymore, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen, is going to come and visit you. He's going to see you in glory. Uh, it, that was hard for them to believe. They're just like, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. I don't know what to think of this. They had great joy on one hand, it says, and they also had great fear. They were confused. Great joy, great fear, confusion. Every emotion exploding in their soul, deep within. Never seen anything like it. Verse 8, so they fled. They went out and fled from the tomb. They started running out of the tomb, these ladies. For trembling, another passage says, and joy and astonishment had gripped them. The whole gamut of emotions. Immediately there, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And while they're going on, it says, they actually ran into Jesus. Mary Magdalene initially didn't know who he was. But it says the ladies, when they saw the Lord Jesus, they figured it out. And it says when they figured it out, that it was Jesus risen from the dead, they grabbed his feet, fell down and grabbed his feet. And it says they worshipped him. Wow. God makes it clear in Scripture that he is the only one to be worshipped. He is a jealous God. And if you worship anything or anyone other than God, that is idolatry, that is wrong, that is blasphemy. And you know what? Every time someone worshipped Jesus, he welcomed it. A testimony of the fact that he himself is God. Absolutely amazing. That is clearly what the Bible teaches. So Jesus welcomes this worship from these women. But not for long. Because he says, you need to let go of me now because i got to go. Go finish your mission and go tell Peter. Go tell the apostles. So the ladies did. And they ran and eventually told the apostles. And it says the initial response of the apostles was, you ladies are crazy. It's too early in the morning. You're not thinking straight. That's impossible. That did not happen they doubted they were still afraid but eventually, john and peter the two head apostles they said you know what john let's go check it out and so peter and john ran to the tomb they ran and they they got to the tomb one of them went in and they saw sure enough that the tomb was empty and that very night and even a week later the lord jesus christ made a special appearance to all 11 apostles and appeared to them suddenly initially frightened them. Then they had great joy when he, when he said, be at peace, do not fear. It is I, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical, resurrected, supernatural, eternal body that was made, get this, of flesh and bone. And his identity was still preserved. Yet it was not a fallen body. It was not a frail body. It could never get sick again. It would never die again. It was a glorious body. And yet he still had the marks in his hands, the scars in his hands and in his feet as a witness. And someone has aptly said, what is the only created thing that will be in heaven? The only thing that man has created that will be in heaven forever. The marks on Jesus's hands and his feet. As an eternal reminder to every person of how they got to heaven, it was through his work, not our own. Through the shed blood of the lamb. And so that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilling his promises, that the fact that he died for sin, he took the wrath of the father upon himself. That's why he died. He was being punished by the father. He was being killed for our sin. His blood was being shed to appease, to assuage a holy God who couldn't tolerate sin. God has to punish sin. And he did. And he did it through Jesus Christ so that we don't have to be punished with God's wrath. Isn't that awesome? That is good news. That is grace. That is mercy. It doesn't matter what you've done, what sin you've committed, what your past is. If you believe that and you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and believe that any of your sins can be forgiven through death, which you deserve, but it's through the death of Jesus and he died as your substitute, that's the good news of Christianity. You can't do anything to earn forgiveness. I can't do anything to earn forgiveness from a holy God because he demands one thing, death. Shed blood. And that's what Jesus did for sinners. Did that on the cross in fulfillment of Scripture, rose again the third day. The fact he rose again from the dead. Get this the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus also said he, that he raised himself from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. Well, how do he do that? Well, look at point number one Jesus rose from the dead. We just read that story. First point there is because he's the God man. The God man. Jesus. Is God and when Jesus was on earth he was hundred percent deity not just divine but deity almighty God in a in a human body tabernacle God tabernacled among us Jesus is God Jesus has always existed Jesus was never created Jesus has existed from all eternity Jesus existed before the world was created Jesus existed in eternity past when there was no earth with the father and the Holy Spirit the triune God of the universe that is what scripture teaches And Jesus shares all the divine, supernatural attributes of deity that God the Father and the Holy Spirit has. And before Jesus was born of Mary, Jesus didn't have a body. He was a spirit as the Father and the Spirit are. And for the first time in eternity, the the Son of God took on a human body as he was born through Mary through the virgin birth lived here for 33 years, died, rose again in a physical body, goes back into heaven in a physical body, will return someday in a physical body, yet he still is almighty, eternal God. Really? That doesn't make sense. That's not logical. That's not scientific. I don't understand that. Neither do I. It's in the Bible. This is what God has revealed about himself. God is bigger than my brain. Isaiah 55. I like it when there are things about God that I don't understand because that means God's bigger than me. And and I'm glad God is bigger than me. God said in Isaiah Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As As far as the heavens are above the earth are my ways above your ways. There are some things about me you will never figure out. God is majestic. He is all glorious. He is infinite. He is eternal. How can a created, fallen, finite, puny little mind like mine comprehend all there is to know about the awesome creator of the universe? He is all glorious. Jesus is the God man. And one one of the main thing that he did on the cross was die for our sin and appease the Father, and by rising again from the dead, he conquered death, Satan, and hell on behalf of sinners. So his resurrection was a vindication of the work he did on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross would be nothing apart from his glorious resurrection. It validated that he was who he said he was. He came and preached, said he was the savior of the world. Trust in me and I will save you from your sin. Trust in me and I will save you from death, hell, and the devil. Well, aren't you just another man, Jesus? No, I will rise from the dead. I am more powerful than all of those forces. Sin, death, hell, and the devil. And I'll prove it. And that's what he did at his resurrection. His resurrection was a justification to the world that he is almighty God and conquered all of those on behalf of sinners, sin, death, Satan, hell. And when you become a Christian and you believe that and you're adopted in the family of God, you do. You have victory over all of those sin. All of your sin is forgiven. When you die, you won't suffer eternal death in hell. And you can live right now in the midst of an evil and perverse world with God's help. And Satan is real and he tempts us, tries to torment us. But because we're in God's family and have the spirit of God, we can resist Satan in this life. That is not true of someone who's not a Christian. So Jesus rose from the dead, his all-glorious resurrection. But the story doesn't end there. Like I said, it's a complete package. It all goes together. His death. His resurrection. Now let's go to Acts chapter 1 and see what happened next. Acts chapter 1 after the four gospels there. The book of Acts, we've been in this book, written by Luke, who was an associate of the apostle Paul, and talked to many eyewitnesses, getting true history about the ministry of Jesus, the birth of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ for the three and a half years, his death, his resurrection, And then how the church began 2,000 years ago. And so Luke is the one that wrote these things down. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He lived at the time of the apostles. And look at Acts chapter 1. And we'll just read verses 6 through 11. The ascension into heaven. So Jesus rose from the dead as the scriptures predicted. And then he was alive for 40 days. And then he ascended. He went back into heaven. Ascended into heaven. So the point's there. He went back into heaven where he came from, is the first point there on number two. He went back into heaven where he came from. And he ascended back into heaven where he sovereignly rules today over the universe. Let's look at this account of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 6. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He's already spent some time with his twelve, uh, his 11 apostles and the women who believed in him. And he was appearing here and there. He wasn't appearing publicly to everybody. He was totally selective in who he was going to reveal himself to. The unbelievers did not see him. And apparently Jesus could come and go at will in his supernatural resurrection body. Wants to appear in a room? Poof! Wants to leave the room? Poof! Really? Yeah. And if you're a Christian, the promise is you'll have a resurrection body like that someday in the future. So here's an occasion, so now Jesus rises from the dead, he spends almost 40 days with his disciples, encouraging them, teaching them, telling them the future plans, preparing them for the fact that he is gonna leave now. I am leaving planet earth. You need to take over. And so he says in verse 6, so when the disciples had come together, they were asking Jesus, who is now in a risen body, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Are you now going to take, basically what they were asking was, Are you going to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies that said the Messiah and you're the Messiah is going to rule on earth as a mighty, glorious king. On behalf of Israel, trampling all the pagan nations underfoot, is that going to happen now, Jesus, please, please. That's what they're hoping. Reigning in glory. The answer is no, not right now. It's coming, but not right now. Verse 7, he said to them, it is actually not for you to know the times or the epics or the specific seasons in world history that God the Father has designated. God the Father has a plan. There's a sequence of events. They need to happen in order as God has planned, as God has prophesied, as is laid out in Scripture. And we can't circumvent or short circuit the plan. Glory is yet to come, but not now. And you know what? It's not your business to know the timing of the chronology of all these great events. Your job, Christian, is to trust and obey. That's the essence of what he said. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the epics which the Father has fixed. They are determined. They were planned in eternity past. They will not be disrupted. They will not be undone. There are no surprises to God. He knows what's going on in the world. He is in charge. He's the creator. He's the king. He is the judge. They are fixed. This is certitude. Did you know that a Christian can actually know with certitude and or in a definitive manner truth? We can. We're, we're in a postmodern world where everybody's trying to tell us, well, you're in a postmodern world and, uh, you know, you, you can't really be certain of, of anything. And then I always say, well, are you certain of that? Are you certain that we can't be certain of anything? Because you sound like you're certain that you can't be certain of anything, which is kind of a contradiction. But anyway, that's a different point. Um, according to the Bible, you can be certain of some truths. And here's one of them. The Father has fixed a day. The Father has fixed a time by his own authority of the culmination of world history that results in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ over the entire earth. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. That's what we're living for. We're living in light of that great truth. But in the meantime, Jesus said, guys, you 11 apostles and those of you on the periphery listening, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'm going to send I'm leaving, but I will send in my place the Holy Spirit of God from heaven. He will come upon you. He will live in you. The same Holy Spirit who created the world, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, this same Holy Spirit who is called God will live in you, Christian. Be patient. Ten days later, that Spirit of God came and came upon those first believers, landed upon them and began to live inside of them. That was called Pentecost. That's when the church began. And it happened on a feast day. It was predicted in the Old Testament, the Feast of Pentecost. Fulfilling scripture once again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and, and you should, and He's not gonna give you, um supernatural power like, uh, Superman and all that stuff. It's spiritual power. Spiritual power. As a matter of fact, I'd rather have spiritual power. That's on the power in the inner man. That has to deal with the significant things of life and the most important questions in life. Questions that physical power can't contend with that's the kind of power he's talking about and you shall be my witnesses you shall be my martyrs both in jerusalem judea samaria and to the remotest part of the earth and the church has been doing faithful christians have been doing that as a church for two thousand years being witnesses for the lord jesus christ that's what we are called to do go and tell not just be witnesses we tell the story of what jesus did but we also love people have a heart for them they're made in the image of god they're separated from god because of sin we have the answer we have the solution god can can forgive you of your sin. If you understand who Jesus is and understand his plan and recognize that you're a sinner and come to him and cry out to him for forgiveness of sin, he'll answer that prayer. He'll forgive your sin. He'll put a spirit in you. He'll adopt you into the family of God. This is all good news. And that's what we're called to do. That's the witness we are to give other people. It's a spiritual message. It's not a political agenda. It's not a social work. It's not educational reform. This is spiritual ministry. One soul at a time. So Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus ascended back into heaven. And before we go on to point number three, I want to read John chapter. If you have your Bible, I, I need to say this, John 15, or sorry, uh, John 17. Because This is amazing. Because um, you go around, I used to, when I was younger, And have more energy and courage. Go around sometimes with a video camera and and go to like the parking lot at Safeway and sometimes with a friend. And then as people are coming out, just survey and just start asking people questions. And they think they're like on television. So many times they're willing to do it. Oh, am I on a a TV show? Will I be on the NBC news tonight? And it's just me with this silly little camera. Nobody's going to see it except for me, but would you be willing to answer a couple of questions? Sure. And I would always just ask him, "Well what do you, have you ever heard of Jesus?" Yes, do you believe in Jesus?" Well, um, I get, well, what do you mean?" And some many people say, "Yeah, I believe in Jesus, or I believe that he existed." Oh, you believe in Jesus." Yeah. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus was God? Or who do you think Jesus was?" And the typical answer was, "Well, he was the Son of God, or he was a great prophet. He was a great religious teacher. He helped a lot of people. He was a really nice guy. Very few people seem to be aware and very few people seem to agree after they gave all their answers that I would say, well, you know what else is true about Jesus? Jesus was God. Not only that, he is God. Jesus is almighty God. Jesus is the uncreated God. A lot of people were—they're baffled, but real? Nah, he's the Son of God. He's a, a part of God. He was created by God. No, he is the eternal God. He is God along with God the Father. That is the most important thing you need to understand about who Jesus is. You can't relate to him if you don't know who he is. And the first thing we need to know is that he is—he's deity. He is God. And he's perfect as a result. So here's Jesus' own. I heard this week there's some public university, I think it was in Florida, it was on the news, big deal. Some sophomore got booted out of a public university for being a rabble rouser. Well, what was he a rabble rouser about? Well, he happened, get this, he was a Christian. You know, those Christians, they're rabble rousers. They don't belong in public universities, wasting our tax money on those people. But anyway, and so he did the interview. And the reason he got booted out of the class, and it was a required class at a public university. Paid for by taxpayers like you and me. If you pay your taxes. Um, So in the interview, well, what happened? Well, the first day of class, the teacher. Obviously had an agenda. Said emphatically and told the students that. The apostles didn't really believe Jesus's message. Even his own apostles, they didn't believe it and they rejected him. Uh, And furthermore. Jesus didn't even die on the cross. That is a lion of fabrication. I don't know what class, economics maybe or whatever, but it's like, why is this lady doing this? Well, this went on, uh, the student said, for weeks. It was, I'm going to my economics class and it's really, let's bash Jesus in Christians class. So finally the student had, student had to speak up and then immediately was shut down by the teacher and the professor told that student, you are not allowed to speak in class anymore. Because he grew up in a Christian home and was saying, no, Jesus was real. Jesus got crucified, and Jesus' apostles actually did believe him. And they tried to shut him down. Then uh, he got an F in the class for the semester. Then the administration of the school booted him out of the school. And his crime, he raised his hand in a class that he paid tuition for to participate in the dialogue and discussion saying that, no, Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus was who he said he was. Oh, another one was, the I think the lady said that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, here it is right here. Jesus did claim time and time again to be God. Listen to this. This is just before Jesus died. John chapter 17, Jesus gets down and he prays to the Father who is in heaven. Praying to the Father. Jesus knows he is about to die. Jesus also knows he will rise again from the dead. And Jesus knows he's going to go back into heaven to be with the father. whom he had spent all eternity past with. And so Jesus begins his prayer in verse one, father, the hour has come. The hour has come for me to die. And then he says in verse five, now, father, now, heavenly father, glorify me together with yourself. Give me the glory that I had as God before the foundation of the world, before I came down and took on a human body. Reinstate my glory I shared with you. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you, Father, before the foundation of the world. Wow. Jesus said that about himself. It's one of the greatest statements in the Bible. From the words of Jesus himself, where he admitted and said definitively, dogmatically, he is almighty God. Equal with the Father from all eternity. So Jesus ascended back into heaven where He came from. And today, He sovereignly rules over the world in resurrection glory. Number three. And this is the complete, this is the exclamation point to the Christian message. Jesus rose from the dead. Actually, Jesus died on the cross for sin. Jesus rose from the dead to conquer sin and death and hell and the devil. Jesus ascended into heaven and reigns in glory and serves as high priest to his people. And is actually wooing unbelievers to come to himself right now, giving them time. Decade after century, after millennium. But at some point he's going to say it's over. Time is up. Number three, Jesus is coming again. We started this message in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to conclude it at the end of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19. This is how the story ends. The Bible is cool because it's like in chronological order. It begins with how all things were created and why, and then it ends in Revelation. It says how the world is going to end. We as Christians actually know how the world is going to end. It is not going to end with North Korea bombing the United States. I guarantee you that. That could happen, but it's not going to end the world. Revelation tells us how the world's going to end. So let's look at it. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11, 11 through 16. John the Apostle, at the end of his age, 95 A.D., all the other apostles, for the most part, almost are all dead, and John has been called to finish Scripture, put the last chapter, tell us how it all ends, and he does. At the end of the age, in the future, John has a vision. God allows him to see the future, and John says, and I saw heaven open. He's looking up into the sky. There is heaven in the future. This is going to happen, and he says, behold, get this. This is awesome. Believe it. You're not going to believe it, but you need to believe it. That's what behold means. People are going to think you're crazy. Unbelievers are going to think this is foolish. But we walk by faith, not by sight behold it is a fact it is true it is certain in the future i saw a white horse and there was one sitting on it and the one sitting on the white horse in the sky this is a flying horse long before pegasus there was the flying horse that belongs to jesus planned in eternity past i saw a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true who's the rider of this horse it is jesus himself he is faithful he is true and in righteousness get this He judges and wages war. That's how the world is going to end. Jesus came the first time as a humble baby, as a suffering servant. As someone so poor, he had no place to lay his head. And he came for one thing, to call people to be saved. He was as gentle as a dove. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. And when the last have come in to the fold, he's going to come in glory, and it's going to be a different way that he comes. He's going to come not humble and meek and lowly. He's going to come in fury as the judge. And he's coming, it says, to judge and to wage war. Well, that doesn't sound nice. Well, this is the holy God of the universe. This is the creator. He has been gracious. Verse 12. The writer's eyes are like a flame of fire. He is omniscient. He can see all things. He knows every heart. He knows every mind. He knows our thoughts. He knows what we do. We can't hide anything from Jesus, the judge. And on his head are many diadems or crowns because he's the king. He's the king of the universe. He's the all authoritative one. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He continues to preserve a unique relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit that no one can intrude into or undermine. Just a sweet, eternal intimacy he has with the Father and the Spirit. No one knows that thing about him. A name speaks of his identity. Verse 13, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And that blood is not from his hands and his feet. That robe is dipped in blood from war. From trampling his enemies underfoot. And his name is called the Word of God. He speaks truth. And he put down truth in the Bible. We know truth right here. It's unassailable reliable it's binding verse 14 and the armies get this the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on a white horse or on their white horses this is amazing so there's jesus he's on a white horse it's a bird it's a plane no it's jesus on a white horse he's coming to judge and behind jesus are the armies of heaven probably the angels of heaven and also uh, believers who have died and are now in glory and they're coming with jesus to land on planet earth that is absolutely amazing and if and this could be me and you someday in the future if we die and then our soul goes to heaven and then someday we come back with jesus we get our resurrection body and apparently we get some kind of a horse and we are following the lord jesus back to earth this is amazing there is no other religion that teaches this stuff this is like science fiction to the rest of the world this is truth From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it Jesus may smite or strike down the nations. He will rule them with the rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of his fierce wrath that comes from God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Absolutely amazing. This is the future. This is what's coming. Jesus is coming again. Christians are called to live in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When all unjustices will be righted. When all comfort will be received and given to us from the Father and the Son. And in the meantime, we're called to be faithful stewards on his behalf. Witnesses for him. Preaching the gospel. Preaching the good news. Pleading with unbelievers. Having compassion and love for them. Being witnesses to them. And trusting the results with a loving, almighty God. That is the message of Christianity. And that is the meaning and the true meaning of Easter, Resurrection Sunday. I want to close with this passage. Follow along if you'd like to to in Philippians chapter 3. This is such a great verse. This is so encouraging. If you know Jesus Christ, uh, you can claim this promise. You can count on it. Philippians chapter 3. This is actually a really good verse to go to lunch on because it's not one of those, you know, downer verses. This is a very uplifting, appetite-expanding verse. Man, I'm going to have two desserts after reading this verse. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 20 and 22 as we close. Okay, Christian, and this is for you if you're a Christian. If you know Jesus Christ personally for our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. We are here temporarily. Ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And actually, God's going to bring heaven down to earth. Heaven on earth for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. Anybody here waiting eagerly for Jesus to return? Amen. Eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Get this. And when Jesus does come, and he will, he will transform. He will, you know the transformers, he will transform. Metamorphosize is the word. The body of our humble state, our lowly body, modern translation, our pathetic bodies. Our bodies that ache and are dying and falling apart and decaying. He is going to transform our lowly bodies, our humble bodies into conformity with the body of his glory. That is awesome. We are going to get supernatural, resurrected, eternal, perfect bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ has right now, someday. That is the promise of a Christian. And the older you get, the louder your amen is in this life. Bring it on. That's an old person over there. We will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has. What power? He has omniscient, I mean, omnipotent power. He is all-powerful that he is even to subject all things to himself. Amen and amen. So I encourage you, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, rejoice as you celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Think of all these wonderful promises that God has given to you, that He's bequeathed to us, that we inherit from Him and live in light of His coming. And in the meantime, let's be faithful stewards to witness to a lost and dying world that is in such great need of this awesome message from our great God. Let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Father. Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for Resurrection Sunday. The opportunity work true Christians all around the world have been gathering around the Bible, around the same message. And it's all about Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've made it so clear. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming down from the glories of heaven to humble yourself and become, take up uh, the form of a human being to willingly die as a substitute, absorb the wrath of the Father, to powerfully rise again from the dead, to go back into heaven. Thank you that you reign as King of kings and Lord of lords right now over our lives and over this universe. And God, we thank you that you have given us the promise you're coming again. And when we get discouraged and down, Father, through your Holy Spirit and the truth of Scripture and fellow believers, remind us of your glorious coming where we will be made like you. We love you. We give you all the praise and the glory, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.